Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Outer Sanctum there is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. In the final, groundbreakers, history makers. Hello to you, Sanctima. Tess Armstrong here with this week's fifth quarter. I don't know about you, but every year when the Australian Open rolls around, I'm all in on tennis. I can't get enough of it. But this year, the lead-up to the Australian Open has been pretty overshadowed by one of the most extraordinary sports meets politics stories we've ever seen, the deportation of the world's number one male player, Novak Djokovic. I've added that last sentence to the ever-growing list of headlines that 2010 version of Tess would never believe or understand If you're in any group chat with friends or family, you too will have a couple of people who are just really setting setting the standard with the content they're bringing to the group. And in the Outer Sanctum group chat, that's Dr. Kate's here. Whether it's pictures of glass for me, excellent zeitgeist memes, that blinking guy gif, or a 10-minute voice memo on a Saturday night explaining the legal stash between Novak and the government and correctly predicting the outcomes She's a real MVP. So I wanted to give her a buzz and extend the gift that we get to you so we can get to the bottom of what on earth just happened. Let's give her a call. Hello, Teddy. How are you? Hello, Kate. I'm pretty good. There's a lot lot going on in the world, but I'm just pretty thrilled to sit and chat with you. How lucky are we? We get to chat. (laughs) I'm actually a legal student getting to talk to someone who really knows what they're talking about, about just the most wild ride of a story. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. And look, I appreciate that many of our listeners will be sick so sick of the Novak Djokovic story, but it is really important and interesting and I think raises heaps of other questions about the intersection between politics and sport. So I do think it's one that we should unpack. Oh, 100%. And there's, I think, probably a world record amount of things that have been said and written about the story this week. And a lot of, uh, ironically, misinformation, which may have been his undoing, but misinformation about Novak's story, uh, our border policies, refugees that were also detained in the same place as him and I want to give people the gift of what you gave to me by explaining to us what were the court cases actually about? Yeah so there were two court cases as you said and they were both really different and they're both very niche very specific court cases with very specific questions that the court had to deal with. So in that first court case which happened a couple of weeks ago now what happened there was that was the case after Novak was essentially detained and stopped at the border by the Australian Border Force and told that he was going to be deported from the country. So when that happened, the court had just a very specific and narrow question in front of it. The question was not about things like whether Novak was eligible to come to Australia. There was no consideration in great detail about his views on vaccination or COVID, etc. The question was simply, did 
the Australian Border Force officials follow the proper process when looking at whether to cancel his visa and deport him. So it's a very specific, limited question about the process that those officials went through. Was the process correct? Was it fair? Was it rigorous? Was it based on evidence? Did they take into account all the right considerations when making the decision to deport him? And in that case, as we know, uh, sort of at the 11th hour, the department uh, responsible for the border force, the Department of Home Affairs, essentially capitulated and agreed that they hadn't, or that their officials hadn't gone through the right processes, hadn't afforded Novak what we call procedural fairness or natural justice, hadn't given him enough time essentially to talk to his lawyers, get some help, get some advice at the airport. And they essentially capitulated, agreed that they'd done the wrong thing and that that decision was essentially voided. And then as we know, what happened was the Minister for Immigration stepped in and exercised what we call a personal power, a a, a discretion that he has to cancel Novak's visa again. And that went back to court. And this was a very different question in front of the court. On this occasion, the court here, the full federal court was again looking at a very narrow procedural question. And that was when the immigration minister exercised this personal power, this discretion to cancel Novak's visa and deport him, again, whether the minister went through the proper process when making that decision. And in both instances, I think what has been misunderstood or um, not necessarily properly communicated to members of the public was that it was this very narrow question about process. Did the decision makers from the Australian Border Force in the first instance and then the Minister for Immigration in the second instance follow the right process when making the decision and that's really all it's about because it wasn't about whether you'd scanned a QR code and it said that Novax was positive or negative I mean there were so many side stories to this story that people had strong feelings about what they thought might happen and what they thought should happen one of those threads that was going all the way through this was people feeling uncomfortable about the fact that they saw the minister on a weekend you know make a decision about Novak's is he in or is he out while we have people that have been in detention for nearly 10 years could the minister make a decision on them tomorrow was the question how was it that Djokovic was able to have his case dealt with within a week oh and the full federal court sit over the weekend what was it about this case is it just because he's super famous does he get to have a better time in the courts because he's got a profile what's going on there the simple answer to that is no it's not just because he has money it's not just because he's famous it's due to a combination of factors the first and most important one and this distinguishes him from uh say the refugees who are currently staying or currently being held, I should say, within the Park Hotel in Melbourne, is that he came to Australia for a specific purpose, which was to play in a tennis tournament. He had a visa uh, which entitled him initially, anyway, to be here for a very limited period of time for that purpose only. And if he were detained and had to wait for, for weeks or months for a court to hear his application, of course, the purpose for him being here would have been and gone. And so in that situation, his lawyers were able to say to the court, look, This is a sort of exceptional situation. He's only coming here for a couple of weeks. We can't afford to wait months or years for him to to get before a court. We'd like you to consider his application now. So he was here for that specific purpose and that's what made it quite a unique situation. But there are other factors too. It is important that, you know, Djokovic is a person who has money. He was able to pay for 
a private legal team, he was able to engage some of the best lawyers in the country, I must say. People who were able to pull together a huge amount of documentation really and get their head around a really complex set of facts and a really complex legal scenario and do all of that, turn all of that information around into a really fulsome application to court within, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours. And that's not something everybody's able to do. A lot of people, especially refugees who come here to Australia with nothing or asylum seekers who come here with nothing, struggle to get legal advice and representation and especially to get it in a timely fashion. So it's a combination of factors, but it's mainly that he was here for that short time and here hoping to play in the Australian Open. And it's interesting because there was a lot of conversation I felt about, you know, why we're talking about Novak when we could be talking about this. But in the end, we talked about the other refugees. We talked about asylum seekers. We talked about border policies because of the Novak Djokovic story. And I thought it was extraordinary. The PM commented on those people in detention, which they have not been spoken about in mainstream media for years. So all of a sudden we were talking about them. Yeah. And look, I think it was great that we were Tess, um, because what I think the Djokovic case has done or what I hope it has done is opened a little window into not just an understanding of how court processes work and migration laws work, but sort of most importantly, this particular area of law, which is called administrative law. As I said earlier, what we were dealing with in this case was this very narrow question of whether the people who were making decisions about Djokovic's visa had followed the right process in making those decisions. If we just step back for a moment, I'll just tell you a little bit about why this area of law matters so much and what I would like people to sort of take away from this the last few weeks. As Australians, there are all kinds of scenarios in which governments or government agencies or departments might make decisions that affect our lives. It might be that we're on Centrelink or that we're applying under the NDIS for disability support. We might be applying to make an application for planning to build a house or to renovate our house, extend our house. It can be all kinds of decisions that government departments or agencies make about us. And when those departments or agencies make decisions, they are required under the law to follow a proper process, to take into account the kinds of information we put before them, to give us a right to be heard, to follow due process, etc. And in this case, as I said earlier, that's really what was at the heart of the case. Did the officials and then did the minister follow the right process when deciding to eject Djokovic? But what I hope people have learned is that, especially in the area of migration law, both the officials that dealt with Djokovic in the first instance at the airport and then the minister later on have very wide powers when it comes to making decisions about people who are coming here to visit Australia, but also people who are seeking asylum and so on. They have very broad powers. Sometimes they do get the process wrong, and we saw that in the first instance. The border officials definitely got the process wrong when they questioned Djokovic at the airport and when they made that decision to eject him. But I hope that, if nothing else, this process has drawn people's attention to some of the flaws that exist when government agencies, departments, officials or delegates make decisions that affect people's lives. They sometimes make those decisions in very pressured circumstances. They don't always give people a lot of time to make submissions or to get a lawyer or to to get help or to get advice. You can imagine scenarios where, um, and this does happen regularly, people who are seeking asylum may not have English as their first language. They aren't given time or an opportunity to speak to a lawyer to get help or advice and are subject to the the weight and power and authority of the state. And that is, if nothing else, what I hope people will 
take away from the Djokovic case a bit of an insight into the enormous power of the state apparatus when it comes to dealing with people who are migrating to Australia or people who are seeking asylum in Australia and the considerable potential for people in that position with those powers to sometimes get the process wrong. Uh, And it has grave consequences for a lot of people. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And you're right, this has been going on for a very long time. We've seen governments use his power for many, many years. And he's not the first person who's been banned or deported from Australia for their views, including Snoop Dogg, which I, you know, encourage people. There's an amazing list getting around. Joe Cocker was deported. I mean, there's a whole list, lots of people, lots of right-wing people have been had their visas cancelled, not been allowed to come here and talk. And I wanted to talk to you about that argument that, Allowing him to stay in Australia would stir up anti-vax sentiment. Now, I think a lot of people would argue that anti-vax sentiment has already been well stirred up in Australia and it wasn't necessarily because any one person was physically in the country. And so I wanted to ask you about whether it's appropriate that a country can ban people because of something they genuinely believe. I also have to challenge myself about that because Novak Djokovic might genuinely not want to get the vaccination he may have very strong personal health opinions should a country ban him from coming here because of those opinions and is he more or less influential in 2022 by physically being in the country when I could go to Novak's Instagram for example and he could post anything on there the world is such a different place do these rules still hold up yeah there's a lot in there Tess and I wonder if I can just pick it apart a little bit and separate it out because there's a couple of separate issues I, I think it's worth talking you through so the first thing to say is that when the minister made that second decision to revoke Djokovic's visa I just want to tell you the basis upon which the minister made it because it's very specific. There is a law that gives the immigration minister the power to cancel a visa if he or she is satisfied, and I'll quote here, that the person's presence in Australia might be a risk to the health, safety or good order of Australia and that the minister also has to be satisfied that the cancellation would be in the public interest. That word might is very important and it was something that was discussed at length in that second hearing that Djokovic had before the full court of the Federal Court of Australia. So one of the things that came up in that second case was this question of, you know, what actually are Djokovic's views on vaccination? What has he said? When did he say it? Do we know what his views are now? And Djokovic's lawyers made a really, I think, very important point. And that was that a couple of years ago, well before we had vaccines available for COVID-19, Djokovic said that he was opposed to mandatory vaccines, but later he said that he wanted to keep an open mind on the vaccine. And part of what Djokovic's lawyers pointed out was that the minister could have, or even the border force officials uh, when they met him at the airport, could have asked him, what are your views on vaccines now? Now that we actually have a vaccine, have your views changed? Are you supportive of them? And they didn't ask him any of those questions. They didn't make any inquiries about what his views were now in 2022. 
the lawyers for the minister then said, well, actually all that matters is that people might perceive that Djokovic holds this view. So he may have changed his mind. He might be supportive of vaccines now. We don't know. But people perceive him to be an anti-vaxxer. And in our view, that's enough. It means that he might be, if I come back to that word that I I mentioned earlier, he might be a risk to public health or safety or or good order because people think he's an anti-vaxxer. This, I think, is really This is a really unique situation that we have found ourselves in with this kind of argument because what it means is that in future, people who might apply to visit Australia, and this includes, you know, musicians, artists, um, academics, activists and sports people might have views or they might just be perceived to have certain views about things. The public might be misinformed or might have misinterpreted their views. But based on the minister's logic with Djokovic, we could, I think, see ourselves in a situation in the future where, say, a sports person is thought to have a particular view, say, about violence against women or Black Lives Matter or human rights abuses in China or the BDS movement in Israel, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, any number of things. And the government could take the view that that sports person or that artist or activist or thinker or academic should not be allowed to come here because of what the public thinks they might think. And that, I think, is a very problematic situation. I think we find ourselves on very shaky ground when we get into the realm, not just of banning people on the basis of what their beliefs are, but banning them on the basis of what we think their beliefs are. And in this situation, as I said, the minister didn't ask or nobody asked Djokovic what his views were now. And I think the federal court's finding, they found, of course, in the minister's favour, will confirm that it's not necessary or essentially confirms that it's not necessary for the minister or anybody acting on behalf of the minister to make those inquiries. Uh, So I think we find ourselves in pretty dangerous territory. Uh, I should say that, you know, I know a lot of people are really opposed to, to Djokovic. A lot of people think his rhetoric on vaccines is really dangerous as you say, Tess, you know, you can you can easily find what his views are if you just Google it or he often shared, you know, he has shared his views in the past pretty openly on vaccines and, and other things. I know he's not a very popular person in Australia, but for me, there is still a really big question mark about where this leads us. I personally feel quite uncomfortable with the idea that a sports person who has some other kind of political view that I might really sympathise with could be banned from coming to Australia. And the example that springs to mind for me most readily is that there are athletes, including people who are playing in the Australian Open at the moment, Naomi Osaka is one, who have been very outspoken in the past on the Black Lives Matter movement. They are known supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, A lot of people who support Black Lives Matter also support defunding the police. That's a situation, I think, where the minister could say, I think be within their powers in the future to say I'm not going to let those people come here because that could destabilize Australian society it could encourage disrespect for the police or disrespect for law enforcement or kind of anarchic sentiment this kind of thing I think that's a very slippery slope and I think this story above all has made us all think about that uncomfortable feeling within ourselves because a lot of people were rightly, and I was too, thought it was hypocritical to allow someone to come to the country unvaccinated when those same rules don't apply to me if I want to go and get a job at a particular place in Australia. So I understand that people were happy 
with him not being able to play. But those same people, including everyone I know and I've spoken to, should still think, okay, but what if that was someone who whose ideas I really agreed with or I really sympathised with and how comfortable do I feel that a minister has that amount of power and shouldn't I be equally comfortable with sports people using their platform to speak about things that I don't agree with as well as sports people speaking about things that I do. I'm unsure where I end up in that scenario, you know, because we often on this podcast talk a lot about people using their voice for good but what's good is in the eye of the beholder so I don't know how we feel about that. Yeah I mean it's interesting because just to take one example you might remember many years ago the North Melbourne men's players ran through a banner at the start of a match and don't quote me on the wording but it was something to the effect of you know we welcome refugees or perhaps even free the refugees but it was a banner that was squarely in support of people who had been seeking asylum and were legitimate refugees in this country. The kind of people who are now being detained at the Park Hotel many of whom if not all of whom have been proven to be genuine refugees under international law and really should be released. Uh, And I was really proud and pleased to see North Melbourne make that statement. But it's always sat uncomfortably with me that, you know, it's also quite possible that a football club could have a banner that had something else like port the red boat, stop the boat. 100%. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also don't know where I where I land on on that. I think it's a very uncomfortable situation. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of Djokovic, I'm, I must say. And I do think that Australians, you know, have the right to feel aggrieved that he came here in the first place and that he hadn't had the vaccine. I, I, I understand that sentiment. But, you know, one of the things that's really important about the minister's decision and, and that's so directly relevant to sport is that the minister said, precisely because Djokovic was a high-profile sports person, he had this capacity to stir up anti-vax sentiment and that people might listen to him and be influenced by what he says. Let me just say that, you know, never again... <laughs> Can we allow a politician to claim that politics should be kept out of sport? The minister very deliberately leveraged and relied on Djokovic's status as a sports person in order to make the decision. They said because he's a sports person, therefore he's famous and and potentially influential, he has this special power, this special status to influence others. To some extent, I think that's true. But, you know, I also want us to, to think about how this might play out in AFL. It might seem very far removed from AFL, but it's not. We do have people who are playing footy who come from America or who come from Ireland, particularly in the AFLW, who come here on short-term visas and the like. All of those people, if they were to hold political views that the government doesn't like or thinks could be dangerous, or if they were perceived to hold those views risk the same kind of treatment that Djokovic faced and in that sense I think really for me that the key lesson at the end of the day is you know even if we don't know where we fall on this question of free speech for athletes and what kind of parameters or boundaries we should draw around that at the very least I think it's important to recognize that the Minister for Immigration has considerable power there are some checks on that power but as I said at the start they're largely procedural checks it's just about whether he goes through the right process when he makes that decision it's the almost unfettered power of the minister that I think is the real issue here and that Australians should be very concerned about Kate, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting all of that through with you and I've come away feeling even more uncomfortable than when I started but that's not on you that's on (laughs) the administrative law and the powers within but it'd be rude of me before I let you go not to talk about the one and only Sir Andy Murray your guy who every time I see him I think of you you're inextricably (laughs) linked forever I want to ask you firstly about his tennis he's playing very well but is there something going on with Andy Murray because speaking of 
athletes using their platform for sharing political views. His manager spoke last week about him being offered a great deal of money to play in Saudi Arabia and Andy turning that down, citing human rights records and saying he didn't want to play there. And he also used his press conference to question Channel 9, the host broadcaster, and why women, certain women's matches weren't on the main channel and certain men's matches had been chosen instead. Love that from Andy. But on the side, what's going on with him? Is there a reason why he's being so particularly outspoken at the moment? It's a good question. I mean, he also, of course, tweeted a week or two ago about the Djokovic case, uh, sort of snapping back at Nigel Farage and his pretty extremist right-wing stance on immigration, uh, which I I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. um, him pointing out the hypocrisy of Farage or the opportunism of Farage. Look, I don't know. I think Andy Murray is somebody who's always been pretty outspoken on political issues, particularly on women's rights and gay rights. He is definitely in the twilight of his career and it may be that he has felt more emboldened in the last little while to speak while he has this platform and there is a, there is a lot of attention on him because he's made this comeback and, you know, he won't be around for too much longer as a, as a player at the highest level, I think. So I think he's embracing that opportunity. But it's one of the reasons I admire him and have always admired him is that he does use the opportunity that's been given to him or that he's worked for to speak up on matters that I think are really important but you know to go back to what we were talking about earlier Tess you know it's it's highly subjective the sorts of things that I think he speaks out about that I value and appreciate and recognize that I think are important social and human rights issues maybe for somebody else they find his views offensive and I can't imagine a scenario where Andy Murray would ever be banned from coming to Australia because his views are seen as too controversial but the Minister for Immigration has the has that power to do so and if he if he took the view that Andy Murray's views on something were too controversial he might this is not something that we've touched upon but I just feel that it's really important to underscore this about the highly subjective nature of the way our politicians might approach the views of athletes you know it is worth bearing in mind that you know there are some players there are some players who are competing in the Australian Open at the moment whose views on treatment of women or violence against women are questionable at best, if I can put it that way. We don't have a debate as a society about whether that's a bridge too far. Now, COVID-19 is obviously a really exceptional situation and it, it might seem like it's not that controversial or, or that it's pretty much a no-brainer to govern and monitor and regulate people's speech on that. You know, that, that might be one view. But violence against women and views about violence against women, I think, is something that is pretty common among sports people, not just in tennis, but in other walks of life as well. And uh, that's not always regulated in the same way. There are certainly instances where celebrities or, or activists or thinkers have been banned from coming to Australia because of their views about women, but it doesn't always happen. And so I also want to point to the hypocrisy that uh, I think sits around the way these powers are exercised. And I think it sort of behooves us all to, to think critically and reflect on uh, how we feel about that and how we feel about politicians making these often quite subjective decisions in our name. And as always, my point of view on that was always that, as you said, we had to deal with the Djokovic implied, you know, what people thought he thinks about vaccinations because we're currently in an emergency situation. And it's quite important at the moment that people are vaccinated, get a, getting boosted. So anything that's off message with that is so important to deal with in a timely manner because we're in that emergency. But you've just reminded me, of course, to think about 
how I might define an emergency and a woman dying every week. I would say that's an emergency situation as well that we don't treat with the timely manner that we may, we may need to. So yeah, oh, a lot to take away from this situation. Kate, keep up the great work in the group chat and enjoy the tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ted. And fingers crossed that Andy Murray can keep on going and go all the way. It would be the, the highlight of a very difficult couple of years. And let's never, ever, ever make an athlete watch their farewell video at a major event only to see them return um, within two years. Awkward. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Ted. Always good to speak. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.